This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Ligon Duncan on the current state of theological education. Ligon Duncan is the Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary and the John E. Richards Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. He served as Senior Minister of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi for 17 years. He is co-founder of Together for the Gospel, Senior Fellow of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and was President of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Ligon Duncan has served as moderator of the General Assembly and has edited, written, and contributed to numerous books. In this episode, Ligon Duncan gives an update on the current state of theological education and discusses how the changing educational landscape affects Christian higher education. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen to Ligon Duncan on the current state of theological education. Great Commission has deep uh, PCA roots. You, you may know that the man who leads Great Commission, uh, Marvin Padgett, uh, led Reform University Fellowship in RTS uh, in, uh, in the PCA and has been a, a longtime ruling elder in the PCA. And Mark Lowry, who's worked with Great Commission for many years, the son-in-law of uh, the legendary John Reed Miller, the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson from 1952 to 1968, who, who's almost like a founding father of the, of the PCA before the PCA was. So there are, there are a lot of deep root. Debbie Dempsey out of First Pres Jackson writes some of that curriculum that you were just uh, hearing about. So we really appreciate the labors of our friends at, at Great Commission Publication. Well, I'm here to talk to you a little bit today about the state of theological education, and I'm doing this especially with a view to pastors and elders so that you can think about this as you see young people that are called to serve the church, either young men that you begin to see the qualifications and gifts for ministry and you want to see them equipped for the pastoral ministry, or others in the congregation who may be preparing for other aspects of vocational ministry in the church. You need to kind of know some of the things that are going on in theological education. And um, I, I, I'm a... Um, I'm a numbers nerd, and so I could flash that thing up there and show you graphs and charts and crunch numbers all afternoon long and love every minute of it, and you'd be bored to tears. So I'm not going to do that to you. I really, I really want to do four things. I want to talk to you about four things, and then I'll try and end early, and, and then you can pepper me with any question you want to ask me, and you won't embarrass me by whatever you ask me. I'll be an open book and try and do the best I can to to answer your questions. But the first thing you need to know as a, as a PCA uh, ruling elder or teaching elder uh, about theological education today is something that 
every seminary that I visit is telling me about the students that are coming to seminaries today. Uh, I have taken my leadership team over the last four years to um, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and Dallas Seminary uh, here in Dallas, Texas. And we've, we've done that for a variety of reasons. One is I, I want my guys to know their guys that are, that are doing the administration and the leadership. I, I want us to learn. There may be things that we can do better that they're doing well, they, they may learn a few things from us along the way. I've been, I've been teasing Mark Dalby. I think they came up with a Covenant Seminary pen because they liked the RTS pens. Um, and, and so they've got a new lapel pen. I think that may have been one of the products of our, of our meeting together. Uh, but th- those have been really helpful and really informative. And here is one, everywhere we go, everywhere we go, we hear this. We love our students. They're smart. They're enthusiastic, they're consecrated, they're motivated, um, they're everything you'd want in students. They just can't read, write, think, or speak. <laughs> now, I, look, that, I, again, I, I love all our students at RTS, um, but almost every seminary I know has had to institute writing classes to to teach guys. Why? Because they have not learned how to write in their undergraduate programs. They've not learned how to read. And so all of the problems of the educational system before graduate school, seminaries end up having to clean up. So for instance, I was talking to a professor at Westminster Seminary. Now, you know, Westminster has had a sterling uh, academic reputation for the last, you know, however many years that is, and deservedly so. So these are not dummies that are, that are going to Westminster Seminary. So a Westminster Seminary president says one of his assignments is that uh, his students have to keep a journal of their reading in which they outline the arguments of the books that, that they are reading for the course. When he gets these journals back, invariably they reflect upon how the student felt about the book that he or she was reading. And the the professor hands them back and said, I did not ask you to reflect upon how you felt about the book. I ask you to recount its argument and content. So start over again. Why? Because the whole educational system has been into this kind of a reflective, subjective, how did that book make me feel kind of mode. And then you come into seminary and you actually have to understand the argument. And so it's a very, very different um, intellectual process. And seminary students need to be helped there. Now, part of the dynamics are, are this. Many seminarians that are, and, and again, I, all I'm talking about is us right now. I'm not talking about all of theological education. You know, if I, there are some fascinating trends going on in all theological education. I was at, um, I was in... Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just a month ago, meeting with Frank Yamada, who is the executive director of the Association of Theological Schools. That's the largest accreditor of theological education in North America. And, and they are preparing for a tsunami of changes that are coming down the pike. He reckons, for instance, that of the 270-something schools in ATS, that 20% of them will close or merge in the next 10 years. 
Now, actually, that's good news because guess which ones are closing and merging? The liberal ones that don't believe the Bible. So, yay, you know, that's awesome, okay? Um, but I, so I'm not talking about that part. I mean, I would love to talk with you, and if you would like to meet me afterwards, I will talk till the cows come home about what is going on in that larger theological setting. I'm talking about our neck of the woods because we're most of us in the room are PCA. Almost all of us, my my guess is, are Bible believing confessional Presbyterians, and we care about our neck of the woods in theological education. So that's what I'm talking about right now. Um, many of the students that come to us. Have, have not been in or not been in for long a confessional reformed healthy congregation, which will actually lead to a second point that I want to talk to you about in a few minutes. But that in and of itself explains why students today, there is absolutely no question that students today know less Bible and less theology than than students 40 years ago when they came to seminary. Now, what that means is, in, in our current cultural moment, there is a lot of pressure on seminaries to reduce the cost and the time of theological education. And the, the most standard operating trick to do that is to cut down on the curriculum. So just... Envisage these two things crashing into one another. Students coming into Reformed Presbyterian good seminaries, kinds that we like, who know less Bible and less theology, and now they're going to be taught less Bible and less theology and unleashed upon the church. That is not a good thing. So... One thing you need to, to know is you want to encourage a continuing, robust theological education that covers Genesis to Revelation, and you would be surprised how few seminary curriculums actually cover the whole Bible. I, I, I was... I was talking to a friend two years ago who went to teach at a seminary in our neck of the woods that had never had a course on the Gospels until he got there. And he said to the faculty, do you all realize you don't have a course on the Gospels? And they said, well, we never noticed that. And, and he got them to, to, to change. Good for him, okay? Good for him. But um, curriculum really, really matters. That's also going to be another point that I make down, down the road. Curriculum really, really matters. We, we, our students today need more, not less. I mean, they've actually got some remediation to do. They don't need a curriculum that gives them less. What, one reason that theological discussion in the PCA can be so frustrating is that some people are not equipped to do it. You, you've, got, you've got to know your Bible, and you've got to know church history, and you've got to know historical theology, and you've got to know theology to do it. Yesterday, I was at the, the GRN luncheon, and one of my dear friends, who's a Southern Baptist pastor, was, was in the room, and after the, the meeting was over, he said, he said, I, I wish we could do that in the Southern Baptist Convention. He was talking about the panel discussion and the talks that were given, and he said the level of sophistication of theological discussion is something I have never heard in the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, do you know why? 
It's because of the commitment. It's because of the ordination process in the PCA. It's because of the ordination standards in the PCA. It's because of the standards that our seminaries uphold in terms of Bible and theology and history. That's how that happens. That does not happen by accident. And by the way, that is one of the things that the whole evangelical world needs. If the, if the PCA doesn't supply it, nobody is going to supply that. And so it's really, really important that we give more, not less, in our seminaries. But there's, there's duress on our seminaries because of the cost and time that theological education um, entails. And so, at, and, and let me say, cost-wise, seminaries have done far, far better than undergraduate education is done in the United States in terms of keeping the cost of postgraduate theological education affordable. Here's the deal. You can go to Westminster, Covenant, Westminster, California, RTS, keep listing, you know, confessional Presbyterian institutions. You can go to those institutions and get an entire MDiv degree for less than you would pay for one year's tuition at a national liberal arts college. So actually, postgraduate confessional reform theological education is actually the bargain of the educational world today. It really is. But, but my friends, 50000 or so bucks in tuition is still a lot of money, especially when the average ATS student brings about $40,000 of undergraduate debt to theological education. So you can see what seminaries are wrestling with. We, you know, we're losing students because they've got undergraduate debt, and then they can't afford to load up and pay, even because, look, here's the deal. Even if you have a full-ride scholarship, what's the most important part of theological education, the most uh, expensive part of theological education? Housing and living, right? It's, it's the other stuff that costs even more than, than the tuition. So... There is a lot of pressure on uh, theological institutions to lower tuition costs and decrease credit hour time so that students can do ancillary things to keep themselves afloat while they're in seminary, and they end up getting less Bible, less theology, less church history, less practical ministry experience, and then that is going to have a ripple effect in the church. And, and it will not be a good ripple, ripple effect. So the, the, the first thing that I want to plead with you about as PCA teaching elders and ruling elders is to realize how incredibly important it is at this time in our culture and in our country and in the church to absolutely expect and demand and promote and support full, robust theological education where we, where we really know uh, the Bible and, and theology. And as, as I think it was Kevin DeYoung said yesterday, knowing these things, of course, is not sufficient for pastoral ministry. That you, that you, 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 know, you, you may be able to quote Turretin and be a lousy pastor at the same time. But... Though it is not sufficient for preparing people for pastoral ministry, it is necessary. 
So if, if men are not equipped with those things as they go into the PCA pastoral ministry, no matter how good they are as pastors, it will hurt the PCA. Uh, because, again, the world knows a lot out there. You know, and, and, and the world really, really disagrees with us a lot out there. And we, we need to know more than the people that we are talking to. And, uh, and that means we, we definitely need to know our own positions, our own Bibles, our own traditions, our own confessions, our own history. And then we also need to know what's happening out there and then how those two things meet together. And if you're giving students less trying to go into that, you're fighting a losing battle. So one big thing is standards really matter. And if, if you look around the world of ATS... Um, there has been a collapse in curricular standards. And that's the second thing I want to talk about, and that's curriculum. So let me talk about curriculum for a second. Um, in um, in uh, the confessional reformed world of the seminaries that are um, uh, accredited by ATS, there are only three seminaries now with curricula above 100 hours for an, for an MDF. That you, 115, 120 hours used to be the standard. And what has, what has happened is credit hours have come down. So let me give you an example. Fuller Theological Seminary, which was founded as a neo-evangelical seminary in California that had a lot of Reformed influence at its beginnings. Harold Ockengay was the president. He had married Reed and Betty Miller. He was the the pastor that did that, so that kind of gives you a, a connection between Akengay and the Northern Evangelicals and a, and a Southern Reformed uh, pastor. Um, Fuller Seminary, their MDiv has 72 hours now, which is barely more than my MA. Okay? And, and guess how much Bible and theology is in it? Yeah, not much. Okay? Um, Princeton Theological Seminary, okay? I'm I'm, I'm about to offend Princeton grads uh, that are in the room. The Princeton Theological Seminary curriculum today is utterly anemic when it comes to Bible and theology. Not that you would want to get Bible and theology from the perspective that they would be teaching it. So that in the end, that may be a good thing that they're teaching less Bible and theology. But here, get at, at Westminster Covenant, Westminster, California, RTS, and I could go down a list of another seminaries too. I just list those because those are the big four. Those are the four seminaries that supply more PCA ministers than, than everybody else. Um, you get in the double digits of required languages. You know how many required language hours there are in the Princeton Theological Seminary curriculum? Three. That's an introduction course. You know, that you, you, you don't know anything. You know the Greek alphabet when, you're, when you finish your, your three-hour intro in languages course. So here's the thing about curricula. Pastors and elders are not, cannot just look and see that a guy has an MDiv. You need to look and see where that MDiv is from and how many hours were in it and what were in those hours. By the way, a great starting point is the uniform curriculum adopted by the Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly all those years ago. 
back in the 70s, they adopted the uniform curriculum. And in that uniform curriculum, they basically said, we expect all PCA ministers to know this, to have studied this. Hold that up against the degrees of the guys that are coming into your presbytery. And you may have to say to a guy, no, actually, you're going to have to go back and take a course in Presbyterian history, which is required in the uniform curriculum. You know, and, and that uniform curriculum is a nonpartisan, you know, PCA thing that we have said is good. Go look at that and compare. Uh, uh, one of my presidents called me up about a month ago and he said, there is an unaccredited seminary uh, in my area that is serving a PCA constituency that has an MDiv that it's offering for less than 30 credit hours. Okay, my friends, that's not an MDiv. Okay, that is not an MDiv. And, and, and if, if, if the, the PCA ministry is supplied that way, it will not go well for the PCA ministry. Um, one, of the, one of the neat things, you know that I've been working with Tim Keller in New York City and Redeemer City to City to do theological education there, and we're not doing an MDiv there. We're, we're doing uh, an MA in biblical studies, so it, an MA in biblical studies that requires both languages. And then he's piling another year on top of that um, to cover basically most of the pastoral ministry courses. So the, though they will not come out with an MDiv, they will actually cover the entire curriculum of an MDiv. But the wonderful thing about working with Tim is this. Tim has done that not because he wants to reduce the requirements. In fact, he piled on things um, in our uh, MA curriculum that weren't even there before. So it's like a 78-hour MA program plus his year of practical ministry on top. So it ends up being more in, in terms of time and credit hours than an, than an MDiv when you're done. But what I appreciate about that is there's a pastor who cares about the languages, he wants his students to have Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and he wants them to have all of the Bible curriculum and all of the theology curriculum and all of the church history curriculum. I mean, it's, it's, it's been pretty extraordinary to work in that kind of setting. That's not the typical instinct of big church pastors. Uh, mostly, big church pastors have tended to, let's cut this thing down. Let's speed this thing up. Let's make it more practical. Um, and, uh, and, and so watch closely curriculum because curricula is changing right before our very eyes. It's very interesting. At that same meeting in, in Pittsburgh with the 20 largest seminary uh, presidents, the, um, there, were, there were two presentations. My, my chief operating and financial officer is here, Brad Tisdale. Wave your hand, Brad. Um, and Brad is really good friends with Chris Meisner, who is the, he's the financial guru for, for uh, ATS, the Association of Theological Schools. And um, Chris gave a presentation, and then another one of their ATS staff gave a presentation. And the, the other ATS staff member was talking about what her field surveys were finding from schools. Now, again, remember, these are not our kinds of seminaries. These are all kinds of seminaries, liberal, Roman Catholic, you know, broadly evangelical, and then some confessional Protestants. So this is the survey results that she's getting from all the seminary, uh, all the seminary constituencies. And said, everybody is saying that administration and um, 
community involvement is far more important than Bible and theology and church history. So she says, you might want to change your curricula to reflect that. Now, here's, here's another thing that should encourage you. In that room, the top 20 seminaries, the only people there were evangelicals. That is a huge change. 25, 30 years ago, evangelical seminaries, most of us, were small. And the liberal seminaries, liberal the ATS was started by the liberal Protestant mainline. Those were the big seminaries. Now, none of those seminaries are in the top 20. So they're all evangelicals. So almost everybody in the room is rolling their eyes at her when she's doing this. But then Chris stands up and he starts giving. Now he's going to give you the hard numbers. And, and guess what the hard numbers show? The seminaries that are doing what she just suggested are the ones that are collapsing. The seminaries with robust Bible and theology and church ministry, they're doing better. In fact, what Chris said is, everybody's saying the MDiv is dying. All my stats say the MDiv is doing better than any other degree program. So, you know, I have lived through already, I've only been the chancellor of RTS for six years now, I've already lived through three educational fads in, in my time. I mean, I, I kid you, I kid you not. The, 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 the first, I mean, the first month that I was the chancellor at RTS, I was told that, that I need to drop all the, the standards and go to, to MOOCs, massive open online courses. And I mean, you know, so MOOCs are out now and now the next thing is in. The fads just run through education like crazy. But here, this guy was talking hard numbers. Now, I've got even better hard numbers. Um, I'm at the Fellowship of Evangelical Seminary Presidents meeting in um, Scottsdale last January. Mark Dalby's there. Scott Red's there. You'll know a lot of the presidents that were, that were there. And um, at that meeting, I, I bump into the president of Heritage Baptist Seminary in Toronto. So he's a confessionally reformed Baptist. His wife is a sociologist. And she has just done um, a, a, uh, a, a, a data-based study of all of the schools in ATS. And what she has found is the only schools that are growing are complementarian. And no, guess what? Nobody will publish her research. So I said, I will send that to John Meather, and that will appear in Reform Faith and Practice, and we will, you know, et cetera. So that, that's, isn't that fascinating? Even in this, in, in this crazy world that we live right now, the, the seminaries that are doing the best are the ones that are committed to robust biblical, theological, historical preparation and are committed to a biblical view of, of ordination and ministry and the things that are entailed in that. Fascinating, okay? But all of that to say is curriculum really matters, especially because of that first point that, that I made. Um, seminary students are not coming with the equipment that they had 40 or 50 years ago. I, I, I came to the seminary having memorized the Shorter Catechism three times and forgotten it twice. And, um, and I still, I mean, I remember when I walked into Palmer, Robertson Old, Palmer Robertson's Old Testament Biblical Theology course, I, I didn't know, if you had asked me right on the spot, what is covenant theology, the course that I have now taught over 40 times at RTS, I would not have been able to give you a definition. 
I wouldn't have, I'm a seminary student out of a good PCA church where the Bible was taught Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, where I was dragged to every church event that there was, and I couldn't have told you what covenant theology was as a freshman student at Covenant Theological Seminary. In Palmer Robertson's book, now, in 15 minutes, he had rocked my world, you understand, okay? I was all in. 15 minutes, I was all in, okay? And I've been all in ever since. But when, when you have guys coming to seminary in, you know, that state or less, and then you give them less, it's going to be a disaster down the line. So curriculum really, really matters. PCA pastors and elders, keep your eyes on curriculum. And look, encourage your seminaries to keep robust standards. I mean, we've, we've just said at RTS, we're not dialing down no matter what. You know, I will run this thing slam into the ground, but we are not going to, to dial this down. Now here, again, here's the, here's the funny thing. With, with our 106-hour MDiv curriculum that is supposedly to be, it's supposed to be too long and too expensive, our enrollment is up 25% over the last five years. And there's almost no seminary in all of ATS. I think Midwestern uh, Baptist Seminary has had a really steep enrollment um, uh, increase over the last few years. Jason Allen's doing a great job there, but there are a lot of other dynamics going on. But that's a very rare thing, and, and, but we're, we're going to keep the standards. So encourage your seminaries to keep those curricula robust and then check those guys when they come in. Um, because, not because they're not smart, not because they don't care, not because they're not enthusiastic, not because they're not consecrated, but they're coming with less equipment than ever before. And we want to produce the same standard of, of ministry uh, in the PCA and in the Bible-believing world. So th- there's, you know, there's the first thing. Um, Pastors need to know more, not less, but students are coming to seminary with less, and we don't need to give them less when they're in seminary. And so one of our mottos is more Bible, more theology, more church history, more pastoral ministry. They need to to have all of those things. So there's, there's the first thing. Pastors need to know more, not less, and so seminaries need to be in the mode of giving them more. Second thing, watch the curricula. Okay, third thing. In our day and time, the, in this room and around this assembly, more creative approaches to theological education are available than ever before. And I, I want you to hear me loud and clear as the president of a traditional residential theological seminary. I am not intimidated by that. M- most of the people that are doing alternative modes of theological education are not my competitors. Okay, I mean, they just aren't. The people, the people that are looking for alternative modes of theological education are not my competitors. They're not going after the same student. I'm, I'm, RTS basically goes out of the, we go after the top 10% slice of all the, the seminary students are out there. I mean, very, very frankly, we go after the cream of the crop. That's who we're going after, okay? So in, in, in today's world, you will have people say the future is online education, and residential education is going away. Okay, why? Because, and it's fascinating, there there have recently been 
Um, You're going to laugh when I tell you what has been done, but there have actually been recent educational studies that have been published in the New York Times and the Washington Post and elsewhere that have said, and this is going to shock you, that it turns out that people learn best when they learn from people that know them and care about them. That'll be $10 million for my you know, Pew Grant study, please. Just write the check to Ligon Duncan. Okay? I mean, somebody has done this. People learn best when they learn from someone who knows them and cares about them. So our, our mantra at RTS is the more personal theological education is, the better. That is why static, digital, online theological education will never compete with me or replace me. Because in the end, what, what I, we say, what is seminary? Seminary is, is the place where, where the pastor-professor connects with the seminarian. That's, that is where seminary happens in that relationship. And you learn best in the context of that relationship where a person really knows you and cares about you and invests him, you know, wants to pour himself into you. You learn best in that environment. Now, does that mean I am against static, digital, and online? No, actually, RTS was the very first seminary ever approved by the Association of Theological Schools to do digital online education. And we are still the gold standard in all of, of, of ATS. ATS sends people to us when they get ready to get in that game. Now, here's the thing. You need, you need to know several things about uh, online education. One thing you need to know about online education is a lot of institutions, especially undergraduate institutions, have used online education to keep themselves afloat. And, it, and, and look, there is a, I, I am so thankful I am not an undergraduate institution president, you know, because that is a passport to unemployment. Um, in, in 2025, we, we drop off a ledge in fertility in the United States. So that in 2025, the number of 18-year-olds will dramatically drop, primarily because it's dramatically dropped in California. And, and we've already been on a decline in 18-year-olds. Every year for the last 10 years, there have been fewer 18-year-olds in the United States. And that number will dramatically drop in 2025, and then it'll continue to slide down. That is why undergraduate institutions are so terrified right now, because there are going to be fewer students in the student pool of potential students. And that means that colleges are going to close. Now, of course, there's a ripple effect of that on postgraduate education, and I have no doubt that that will impact seminary education as well. And what a lot of schools have decided is the way we're going to survive that is we're going to grab online students, okay? But if you do online education as a survival strategy, you will fail your students and you will fail the whole purposes of your theological education. Uh, and by the way, this has already happened at several institutions. Uh, where they've, they've gone big into the online market and it's actually ended up hurting their residential theological education. Okay. So what, what we have wanted to do is we wanted to say, yes, there are students that cannot relocate and enjoy 
the benefits of our full residential theological experience. But what we want to say all the time is the more personal the theological education is, the better. I mean, just think about it. If you, if you went to an entire curriculum online and never met a seminary president at that institution, which one of them is going to be a reference for you when you're going to, to be a pastor at Honey a Path Presbyterian Church? Okay? They need to know you, and you need to know them, and they need to be a real human being that somebody can call up on the phone and say, would this guy be a good pastor at our church? Next, what, what you get from your fellow students in theological education is irreplaceable. I had an amazing time in seminary, an amazing time. The curriculum was wonderful, the professors were wonderful, but the human relationships that I made were unbelievably helpful to me. Guys that were really, really different from me, older than me, younger than me, smarter than me, better in minister than me, I learned stuff from all of them. And you lose that if you're in complete isolation, right? So what we try and do is in our online education, we try and do as best as we can to mitigate those kinds of things. Sometimes it's through cohort models. So what we've done in Orlando, and we're experimenting with it right now, is a hybrid MDiv where there are students in Wisconsin and, and the Dakotas and upstate New York that come into Orlando in January and in the summer, and they study together for two to four weeks a year, and then, then they go off and they do digital things. Here's the thing, though. They look at that digital and listen to that digital material differently because they actually know the professor and the professor knows them. And you know how it is. Once you've heard a guy and you know a guy, when you hear him on tape or on, you know, whatever the delivery system is, tape, I'm really dating myself. Let me explain what a tape is for those of you who don't know. Um, <laughs> I should have talked about the hand-cranked phonograph, shouldn't I? Um, no matter what delivery system you're getting the audio or the video, once you know a person, you listen to them differently. So we try, we've tried to figure out ways to augment that experience to make it more personal. And, and we're going to do some pretty, pretty hard post-testing on ourselves. Are we really doing a good job for these students? And, and how, can, how can we make their experience better? So I am not against trying to use every of... I use digital stuff all the time. But in the main, we still think residential theological education is the gold standard. And... Um, and, and, and we, so we want to make that feasible in our day and time. And, and we really think that pastors and elders ought to encourage when and wherever possible for that to be pursued by those who are heading. I was just talking to a guy outside the door that was ordained under the extraordinary clause. There's an extraordinary clause there for a reason. And so there are always extraordinary reasons for doing things differently. But our, the, the, the main course... The, the standard position ought to be, we think, still residential theological education. Interestingly, um, you know, our, as you might imagine, our students in New York City are as tech-savvy and digital as any human beings that walk the face of the earth. Not a single one of them prefers digital to in-person. 
I, I give you, I'll give you the microphone and you go interview every single one of them right now. And every single one of them would say, I would rather have Dr. Allen in the room with me than, than Dr. Allen on Zoom or Google Hangouts or Skype. I would rather have Dr. Allen in the room with me than I would listening to his digital course through iTunes or the RTS mobile app. So it, it's fascinating, and it, and it shouldn't surprise us. We have a generation that was born with an iPhone in their hands, okay? And they crave personal relationship. And so when people come along and say, the future of education is impersonal, digital, nobody's ever seen you or known you, information delivery, transfer of knowledge. Bunk! No way! This generation craves relationship, personal connection, investment, mentoring, father figures, all of it. You cannot do that digitally. For God so loved the world that he did not send a digital imprint or a hologram. Okay? Jesus came here. So what we try and do is we, we, we try and creative, find creative ways to bring them to us, and we find creative ways for us to go to them. So uh, one of our recent graduates through the Global Online program was Michael Pradigaladad, who is a Baptist pastor in Sydney, Australia. Now, there are good evangelical institutions in Australia, in Sydney, in Melbourne, etc., he is a Cambridge PhD in theoretical chemistry, so this is not a dummy. Um, and he looked around at all the curricula, and he said, I like the RTS curriculum better. And so he did global. But guess what? He came to Charlotte on three occasions during his digital online global program, and four times our professors went to Australia and taught courses there. And so he actually ended up getting almost half of his curriculum face-to-face. And he loved the experience. Well, that's an example of how we try to personalize even digital education. So I am not threatened by static digital online education at all. It can't come close to competing with personal, relational, residential, theological education. And so again, I I want you all to, in realizing that, encourage that and, and make it possible uh, wherever you can. That leads me to my fourth and last thing, and, uh, and then you can go, and, or, or I can a- answer questions, and that is simply this. It's never been more important for local pastors and elders and churches to be actively engaged in the preparation of the next generation of ministry. Now, that's always been the case. You know, uh, Paul Settle and Wallace Tinsley and Steve Wallace and Richard Burgett, and I can go down a long list of PCA ministers that invested in me as a teenager, had a profound effect on my theological education. That's always been the case. You know, I love it when I ask guys, who's your favorite preacher? And I don't hear Tim Keller. I don't hear John Piper, I don't hear, you know, whoever the big guy is, I hear, well, my, my pastor's my favorite preacher. That's, that's always been the way it is. That, and local churches have always had that role. It's just more important now. Partly because of what I said in, under point one, guys come never having had a healthy local church experience. So sometimes what I'm doing in seminary is I'm saying to a guy that got saved in RUF 12 months ago, 
whose only healthy experience of Christianity has been his relationship with his RUF campus minister or his campus outreach campus minister or his campus crusade campus minister or his Ivy campus minister or whatever, Christian Union, whatever it is, and a wonderful little local evangelical church that loved him and supported him for about six months or 12 months while he was in, in college. Now he's at seminary preparing to pastor a church. And he has never really been in, for any durable period of time, a healthy one. So what's my agenda number one is not just to get him systematic theology and biblical theology and historical theology and pastoral theology. It is to get him in a church. So church partnership is huge. And one of the advantages that we have at RTS, because we're in eight different cities, is more church partnership. So in Jackson, tiny little Jackson, Mississippi, we're not talking about the Dallas Metroplex. Jackson, with like 500,000 people, we have 43 paid church internships in Jackson. That is huge. But we're, that's just one of our eight cities. So we have those kinds of relationships in Orlando and in Charlotte and in Washington, D.C. and Atlanta and Dallas and Houston and New York City. And what that means is more RTS students have an opportunity to have that kind of involvement in a healthy, confessional, reformed, Presbyterian local congregation. But that is huge for your congregation to be involved in that way. You are literally shaping the life of a guy that is, go on, is going to go on and pour his life into other Christians in a confessional reform Presbyterian local church setting someday. And that means that local churches need to be more deliberate about that. Presbyterians 125 years ago were pretty deliberate about this. We did not have a free market, go equip yourself on, the own, on your own plan. Presbyterians thought, no, we need to be actively engaged in that. So 125 years ago... Presbyterian candidates for the ministry, once they were candidates for the ministry, did not have to pay tuition and were paid a stipend to go to seminary because the church thought it was its responsibility to prepare the ministry of the church. Now, partly because we got so suspicious of our liberal theological seminaries that we stopped, we stopped doing that. By the way, just a little bit of encouragement, RTS has more men preparing for the ministry than all of the PCUSA seminaries combined. Amen. Um, and, and, and by the way, that, I think that is probably indicative of the actual membership of the churches. I have long suspected that there are more Bible-believing Presbyterians in church on Sunday mornings in America than there are liberal Presbyterians. And I, I think that number tells you something there. But... The, the local church's involvement in those guys at Westminster, Covenant, Westminster, California, RTS, Birmingham, Greenville, you know, just go down our list of, of institutions. It's more important than ever before. In fact, when I sit down with pastors and elders, I often say, when they say, what can I do to help theological education? I say, have interns and pay their seminary tuition have interns and pay their seminary tuition. It'll do four things. It's a win, 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 win. It's a win for me because I don't have to go out and raise that money. It's a win for the student because he doesn't have to go out and figure out how to pay his tuition. 
It's a win for you and the local church because you actually get to pour your DNA into that guy and you're probably going to keep him longer. He's going to be with you four or five years rather than two or three years. And then it's a win for the church of the future because you've got a, a student who's gone through a robust seminary curriculum, had a good, healthy local church, on-the-job training experience, and now they're ready to do better ministry. And so just being dialed into the importance of local church investment in theological education is hugely important for us in the conservative, Bible-believing Presbyterian world. So thank you for being today, being here today. I'll tweet out and send out some other fun statistics for those of you who are number nerds like me. Uh, but I, I thought those would be the most practical things I could talk about. And um, I'll hang around if you have any questions. Y'all have a great day. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.